The interviews in this podcast, all of which are ultimately uplifting stories of human transformation, may contain general discussions of depression, trauma, violence, abuse, or cultural and racial bias. On this episode of Shift Shift Bloom... I was with a group of friends and a trans friend of mine actually announced to my girlfriend at the time, you know, you do realize that Jordan's trans, right? And I just remember how indignant I was and I felt, you know, I was like, no, um, I think I would know if I was and that just doesn't make sense. But I look back on that now and Ben was seeing something in who I was and, you know, he recognized something in me that I was yet to see. Jordan Constantine knows there are at least two sides to every story. As a foster youth, he had a social worker. As an adult, he became a social worker. Born on the other side of the pond, he now chooses to make the U.S. his home. And though assigned female at birth, today he shares with us his story of gender transition. I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, a podcast about how people change. My guest today is Jordan Constantine, who is a senior policy analyst and safe systems practitioner at the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Welcome, Jordan. Good morning, Kristen. So I just rattled off a whole bunch of job <laughs> titles, but I know there's so much more to you than that. So in your own words, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, yep, you, you talked a little bit about what I do. Um, so the work I do with the IF Center and with the Safe Systems team is honestly a huge part of my life, actually. Um, and it's something that's become really important to me. But yeah, um, I am, as you can tell, not originally from the US. Um, I grew up in the UK, moved here seven years ago now. I, I live just outside Nashville with my dog, who is very important to me. I'm sure he'll show up in this podcast at some point as well today. Um, I hope so. So yeah, I'm looking forward <laughs> to talking more with you. Yeah, me too, likewise. So I guess, you know, John and I decide we want to do this podcast and we put out this call to people in our circles, professional and personal. And we say, who wants to talk about change and personal changes they've gone through? And so I wonder when you take in this offer for the first time, you know, where does your mind go and what does that even mean? What does change mean to you and how has change impacted your life? Yeah. You know, the email came out from John, right? You know, in, in many ways, it kind of spoke to me initially. And I had that moment of, oh, this is something I'd really like to talk about. Um, and then had that moment of, but do I really want to do that on a podcast <laughs> in a very public way? Um, but I think for me, you know, people's stories are so central to the work that I do and that we do in BF Center. We do system improvement work within our team. And, you know, we focus on creating change within child welfare agencies. And, you know, I recognize the challenges that are inherent in that so often. And it connects with me personally, too, I think, as somebody who has experienced, you know, numerous changes in my own life, in a lot of different ways. You know, I have my own story to tell about that change. And I think when we have that opportunity to share our stories and, 
hear other people's stories, you know, in some ways they resonate with us. And maybe there's something in what I have to share with you today that will resonate for somebody else. Who knows the ripples that come from the words we put out into the world, right? So I think I'm stopped a little because I'm thinking about you being stopped. And the first thing that you said to me was how personal do you want me to get? And I didn't know why you were asking that question. Uh, And I certainly knew that my answer was as personal as you want to get. And so let's, let's talk about the big change you and I know we're here to talk about. Sure. The, the big change I think for me that immediately comes to mind is related to my gender identity. So I identify as a transgender man. Um, and you know, that process of change for me has been hugely significant in my life. And the reason for my question to you about how personal do you want this to be is I think it's really representative of some of the uncertainty I still carry and hold within me about how to share that information, when it's okay to share it, what it means to share it, how it might be received. So yeah, this this process of you know being willing to talk about that aspect and that part of my story and identity has been really helpful for me in terms of thinking about you know some of those barriers, some of those things that get in the way for me. I'm very fortunate in many areas of my life, including in my working life, to you know work with people who are affirming of who I am and accepting of who I am. But that's not necessarily the case and the reality for a lot of trans people. Being able to talk about this and tell that part of my story feels important. The timing of that feels right for me to do that too. Yeah, I'm glad that you are tuned into the, the, the idea of timing and just sort of taking an opportunity. And I hope it leads to you talking about it more. But I, I want you to take mm. me back to... When did you know that you were transgender and what was the beginning like for you? It's, it's, it's interesting because it's often one of the first questions that somebody will ask, right, when they know. And, and it's not always the easiest one for me to answer. And I think, you know, the one thing I want to say that feels important for me to say at the beginning of all of this conversation is that, you know, I, I only am able to speak for my own experience, right? Yeah. So in no way can I speak to the experience of every transgender or, you know, non-binary person at all. But for me, it was more of a slow evolution, I think, mm. in terms of really understanding that aspect of myself. I have some early memories. So, you know, I remember being kind of six years old at school and not really understanding why I wasn't able to change, it, you know, swimming with the girls and not necessarily understanding where I fitted, but not being able to really kind of articulate that or pin that against, you know, any particular issue. As a child, I was what would be traditionally referred to as a tomboy, I guess. You know, my presentation was and has been really throughout my life prior to transitioning, was really relatively kind of non-binary and androgynous in that way. But I didn't make the connection. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. But I think for me personally, you know, the earlier parts of my life were really quite challenging. And, you know, in my early 20s, I was dealing with, you know, quite a lot of post-traumatic stress. And so in that sense, really, my own sense of identity was, I think, very masked by those things. It just hadn't become clear to me. And in my late 20s, I came out as gay. And it felt 
kind of right, but still not really fully right. But it was it was the best explanation I had at that point for I think what I was experiencing in terms of my identity and you know, life rolled along for twenty odd years. And, you know, I think as I as I matured and got a more rounded sense of my own identity, I started to question that more. I came out as trans when I was forty one. Um, so back in 2011. And it's actually very common, as I understand it now, for people to actually come out around their 40s. I think that's changing, I think, with our younger generations, and we'll probably talk more about that. But not uncommon for people to identify that later in life. But about five years before I came out, I was actually at Pride in Brighton in the UK, which was what I consider home, a place that's close to my heart, which has a very accepting and vibrant LGBTQ community. And I was with a group of friends and a trans friend of mine actually announced across our group of friends to my girlfriend at the time, you know, you do realize that Jordan's trans, right? And I just remember how indignant I was and I felt at that time. It was just, you know, I was like, no, um, I think I would know if I was, and that just doesn't make sense. But I look back on that now, and you know, Ben was seeing something in who I was, and probably the conversations we had, and you know, he recognised something in me that I was yet to see. And interestingly, as I started to tell more people about me being transgender, as I was coming out, I had that experience over and over again, where people were saying actually that makes a lot of sense I didn't know that that's what it was but that makes sense about you I was still managing um, congregate care and group homes at that time and would still have you know an amount of contact with the young people who were in our service and there was one young man who I'd worked with historically and and was still receiving services from us and this young man who I'd worked with you know it was important for me to tell the young people that I was going through transition because clearly they were going to see that, right? So, yes. and, you know, he, he'd actually started misgendering me prior to that and was using male pronouns. And so when I did actually tell them that I was transitioning, he just kind of looked at me and said, yeah, I knew that about you. And it just really struck me how, you know, how perceptive our young people are, but also how unaffected they are sometimes by the adult frame and way of seeing things that we have that often complicate something, right? There was just this simplicity about his response and the response of all of those other kids who just saw it, accepted it, and, you know, continued their relationship with me as it as it had always been. So I think in a very long-winded answer to your question, Kristen, I think other people knew before I did. And I'm still not sure that I was sure until I actually started the process of medically transitioning. I think that was when I was able to say categorically, yes, actually, gender dysphoria was what I've been experiencing. And my gender identity is now aligned in a way that feels natural and feels right to me. Wow. I'm curious, in this story that you've just told, you mentioned your friend Ben, you know, sort of called you out. And, and then this young man that you were working with misgendered you. So w- what are the feelings that come up when you, when you think about those moments? And, and I'm wondering if those were triggers for you in any way or pre- precipitating events that moved you in the direction that maybe you wouldn't yeah. have moved towards so quickly? 
I think possibly, I think certainly that conversation with Ben and, and just, you know, the other thing that I think it's important to say is outing somebody is never okay, right? So, um, yeah. you know, even if they don't know that yet themselves, that's not necessarily the best thing to do. So, you know, I wouldn't advocate that approach in any way, um, which was partly part of my shock, I think, when it happened. But it certainly planted a seed within me to question what is it that he's seeing in me that has him think that? And I think, you know, at the point I made the decision to come out, kind of put that stake in the ground and say, okay, I think that I'm transgender. I think that's what this is, this feeling is. You know, it was really precipitated by, you know, challenging events, right? You know, I I just ended a long-term relationship, which just wasn't working. And I think coming through the process of grieving that relationship and the losses in that and thinking about the future and how did I see myself in future relationships and what might that look like, I had this overwhelming sense that there was something that I needed to change before I entered another relationship. You know, so really reflecting on what wasn't working about that for me, I think was a bit of a catalyst too. And and the change that I experienced in those moments, I mean, I think there's something incredibly liberating and also terrifying. There's there's a real vulnerability in those moments, I think, but also an authenticity that comes with that, that comes through. And I think I often find that in those challenging moments is that my sense of self is actually stronger in those moments. And when I can clear out the white noise and really listen in, I often just innately know what I need to do next. And that was really how the process felt. So I talk about it as an unfolding, you know, you you may talk to other trans people who would tell you that they very clearly knew and knew for a long time. And that just, you know, that wasn't my experience. Do you think having the wherewithal or presence of mind or bravery to ask questions is a critical piece of it? Because not for everyone is it true. Let me let me try that again. It is not true for everyone <laughs> <laughs> that there's just a deep, unshakable knowing. I feel like even in the way you reflect now, there's such a sense of time and asking and waiting to get an answer. Like you said, the white noise kind of has to settle, yeah. has to diminish. I think, you know, I think asking those questions of myself is for sure a piece of that. And doing that from a place of real curiosity, but also, I think, acceptance. Mm. I don't know why the word acceptance is coming to mind now so strongly, but it really is. So it's less about, you know, discovering something about myself. It was always there to be found. Mm. It was just, you know, what, what do the conditions need to be? What needs to be different or in place for me to create the space for that acceptance of what's there and to let that come through. And, you know, we started at the beginning of this conversation with me talking about my doubt about whether this is something that it's okay to share or is it too much to share? I think, you know, some of that doubt was in the way of that acceptance of myself. And, you know, I'd go further than doubt to say that, you know, it's squarely rooted in shame too. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we talk enough about shame and you know, how powerful that is as an emotion in terms of, you know, how we come forward in the world. And, you know, part of the acceptance at that time was not clearly of, you know, the gender I identified with, but almost an acceptance of not fully knowing, but being willing to 
take the next step without knowing what the path was in front of me, but just trusting it was going to emerge when I took that step. I think a lot of the acceptance was about being willing to sit in the discomfort of not knowing and explore it. Had something prepared you for that? Because that is not, I think, a skill that we are taught or in, even encouraged to to develop in the Western world. I mean, it, it's more, it's coming into its own now, but most people cannot sit in not knowing and the discomfort that that brings up for very long at all. Yeah. And to be clear, neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> So it's not it's not a place I choose to go often, but I think having lived through periods of time where I didn't have much hope for my future, I think it's given me the ability to ask myself those questions, be willing to take that next uncomfortable step. I had a great teacher in that as well. Um, you know, my my foster mom who really spent a lot of time with me, and particularly through my early twenties, where I was in a fairly significant amount of crisis and, you know, spent a lot of time in mental health services and really didn't know how my life was going to look. You know, I think she really infused a lot of that wisdom to me at that time, and it certainly stayed with me. Um, I'm not somebody that shies away from hard conversations or uncomfortable situations. I think I have an understanding that there's always learning in those for me. and. There's a level of trust in that process now. I think I know now that it's going to be okay. It's taken me to 51 to get here, but I think now I can yeah. reassure myself that you're going to be okay. Yeah. I envy people who get there before the midlife. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like I'm on your team with that, that it's, yeah. it's we're about the same age and it's only now that I I have that knowing in the storm that the storm will end. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I think I'd say on that is just culturally as well. You know, there's this sense that discomfort is something to be avoided at all costs. And, you know, we we miss out on opportunities for growth and learning in that. Yeah, it takes me though right back to your original apprehension, let's say, about how much mm-hmm. to share and when it's appropriate and that perhaps having to talk about yourself in a way that maybe a cisgender person does not have to ever really talk about themselves right is all is inherently uncomfortable and yet necessary yeah and and i think you know it it speaks to you know the way our society our cultures are structured right so we live in very kind of heteronormative cisnormative cultures And for those of you listening to this that may not know what cisgender means, I'm going to clarify because I think, you know, language is important. Language is important and it's changing. And some people might not even be aware that it's changing, especially around gender and identity and sexuality. I was so glad Jordan jumped in and defined things for us because there's no way I could have done it with as much ease and precision and simplicity as he did. You're going to want to check out the show notes for more guidance on how to get educated about this stuff. But for now, listen up. Cisgender essentially means that your gender identity is aligned with the sex that you were aligned with at birth. So 
that would mean that if you identify as female and you were assigned female gender at birth, that you are cisgender. And for somebody who's transgender, you know, my gender identity didn't align with the gender I was assigned with at birth, hence I'm transgender. This sense of othering is such a prominent theme, right? So we have our kind of dominant culture, whatever that is, you know, whether that's a white dominant culture or a cisnormative dominant culture and anyone who lives outside of that is is othered in so many senses and it's always incredibly affirming to me when I hear people introduce themselves or talk about their identity you know as a cisgender person it's like we all have a gender identity it's not unique to those of us who identify as trans or gender diverse we all have a gender identity. We all have a sexual orientation, but there's this onus on people who identify outside of that expected norm to to talk about theirs, rather than it being something that collectively in community we all share and talk about. You know, it still comes up for me now when I think about pronouns, which are just one of the easiest ways to affirm somebody who is not cisgender. And it's interesting to me, you know, in the work that I do, there are sometimes meetings I go to and with particular child welfare jurisdictions where everybody comes onto those calls and they introduce their name and they introduce their pronouns. And it's an accepted practice. And as a transgender person, that's hugely affirming to me. Just to know it immediately communicates to me that I'm in a space where pronouns are respected and validated and somebody's gender identity is validated and you know important and there are other settings where people don't introduce themselves with their pronouns and so neither do I so one of my kind of personal challenges is when do I step forward and use my pronouns in a room where other people aren't as a way to communicate just you know a different way of approaching identity and belonging. I'm cu- I'm curious as you're talking about uh, pronouns for me the practice came out of being a university professor and sort of actually being led I think in a lot of ways by the students who yeah. led the conversation or led by saying my pronouns are they them. I'm I'm curious if there are other simple practices that maybe not everybody listening knows about that that you could share in terms of creating spaces that are inclusive? I think asking. So, you know, that Mm -hmm. practice of asking somebody their their pronouns, and not just because we have a suspicion that they may have a gender identity that's not cisgender, but just as a matter of course and practice. How do you like to be referred to? You know, we we do it with names um, without really thinking about it, right? And names are hugely important too. But, you know, we can add pronouns into that very easily. You know, there are there are simple ways to, to communicate that also, that communicate that it's a safe space, whether that's having some kind of marker, you know, whether it's a rainbow sticker on your notebook or just some kind of visual marker that communicates allyship um, with the LGBTQ community. You know, those things are huge. Being able to see myself in those spaces in some way or another. And sometimes that's by somebody else's courage in saying, actually, this is how I identify and bringing that into the room. That almost, in a sense, gives me permission to do the same. Actually, this is who I am. This is a part of me that you may not have known about. And, you know, this is an important part of me. 
again opens up space potentially for somebody else to come forward and say, actually, I relate to that experience. So let's go back to that, the experience of making a transition. And as much as you are willing to share, talk about some of those. I think you said this is now a process that began about 10 years ago in 2011. So, So talk about some of those physical, hormonal, surgical changes that you have gone through. Yeah. So it's interesting because when you sent the questions across that we were going to talk about, Kristen, and, you know, I saw this question um, and I had an immediate reaction to that, right? And I was Mm -hmm. like, I want that question to come out. And actually it was in a conversation with my partner where I was talking about it. And I said, what's my resistance around this? And when I really started to dig in and get curious about, you know, what my resistance was, I really saw it as an opportunity to talk about that. So I think it's an important question to ask. So I guess what I want to say first in response to that is that for a lot of trans people, you know, when when someone finds out that you're trans or you share that with them, the immediate go-to is to want to understand the kind of physical and medical changes, right, yes. that occurred. So people often have those curious questions about hormones, about surgery, and it's it's been challenging to navigate that sometimes because, you know, the other thing that it's important for me to say is I identify as a transgender male. Now, that identity communicates something for me because it communicates the fact that, yes, my gender identity expression is male but my gender identity is actually much more than that so the trans part of that identity is important to me because I still claim very much that female aspect of my identity that's not the case for all trans people some trans people will want to transition and not ever refer to their gender assigned at birth or that experience that's not the case for me so there's this almost dilemma sometimes about do I share this information because maybe it will help to educate somebody or help them understand something about being trans or transitioning and yet at the same time in what other situation would we ask a bold question about somebody's genitalia and medical procedures in that way right it's it's a dilemma but my partner, who's particularly wise, pointed out to me that this was a great opportunity to talk exactly about that issue. So I think, you know, it's important to say that for most trans people, those things are sometimes off limits as a conversation. I think it's important to know that if you're talking to a trans person, really let them lead the conversation in terms of what they want to share and not always focusing just on those medical aspects of transition. So with all that said, Kristen, and thank you for giving me the space to say that. I wanted to to ask you if you would too, because you defined it for the listeners uh, before you, you helped us define transgender and cisgender. Will you mm-hmm. just delineate gender expression and gender identity as you, as you see it? Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you asked because it's an important distinction. It's awesome that, that Jordan is taking this time out to educate us, but it shouldn't be his job. It should be our, our own self-motivation. He's encouraging people to, to ask and to let trans people lead, but the other important thing for people to remember is just like with issues of race, it is, it is on the 
the privileged class, so to speak, to educate themselves. It's on the, the people with the power, the cisgender people, to also seek out information on their own and and bring themselves up to speed and not always rely on the trans man sitting across from them to, to hold their hand through everything. It's on us. It's on me, the cisgender host, to learn more and not to expect that he's going to teach me everything. There are a lot of ways to learn that, that, don't, that don't put the onus on the wrong people. So gender identity for me is, you know, the gender that I identify with and as. And my gender expression is how I express my gender externally. So if you've seen me, you'll know that my gender expression is predominantly male. If you walked past me in the street, you would read my gender as male, most likely. Now, my gender identity is a little more complex. It's not like I made the change and it's done, right? It's still evolving, even now. And what I started to come to realize was that the female aspects of my identity are still really important to me. I still think in a very female-oriented way. Um, I still identify as female in some ways and in certain settings, which, you know, initially when I started to recognize that, there was almost a sense of panic. It was like, did I make the right decision? Am I transgender? What does this mean? Well, actually, it just means that my identity is more fluid than the binary male or female. So, you know, for the most part, I think my gender identity is is male, but it's it's not that cut and dry. It's like the pendulum swung from female to male and then kind of just swung back a little and mm. somehow kind of, you know, it settles where it settles. Yeah, and hearing that too, I think it it's liberating to even hear and to be reminded that it is a spectrum and that mm-hmm. we're not locked in. None of us are, are locked in and that we're always changing. Right. And that we shouldn't, there should not be whatever we can do to reduce or eliminate shame around that. That's important. I yeah. think, I think, I think the younger generation is way ahead of, in some ways on that, on that topic, on that spectrum too. So it's interesting to hear their perspective and, and, and see the way, how fierce they are about claiming this, the whole spectrum yeah. of expression and identity. Um, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, I'm, continually inspired by our younger generations right who just have a different perspective really on binary gender they just don't identify with binary gender in the same way and a different level of acceptance of you know the range of identities that fall within that not just in terms of gender identity but also in terms of sexual orientation which is the other important thing to note i think gender identity often gets conflated with sexual orientation Mm. they're distinctly different the quick and easy way to remember that is my gender identity is who i go to bed as my sexual orientation is who I go to bed with, right? They're different, uniquely different. Let's let's go back to the question you wanted to throw out and uh, or you were resistant to, and, and let's talk, yeah. share what you want to share. 
So when I think about, you know, I think about the process of transition and there is, you know, there are different aspects to transition. So there's a social transition that, you know, as a trans person, you undertake. So for me, I completed my medical transition in the UK. So that's an important thing to note because access to treatment is is somewhat different there. Um, it's more accessible and less restricted by financial resource in, in the way that it is here. But with that said, there's still a process and a gatekeeping process. And one of the requirements is for you to live according to your gender identity for a period of two years prior to undertaking any kind of medical transition. And, you know, that period of time, I think, presents incredible challenges for trans people, um, particularly for trans women. So there's the social aspect to transitioning. So things like changing my driver's license and changing my bank accounts and coming out at work and changing my pronouns and in my name. Although I actually changed my name long before that, interestingly. So you we talked earlier about some of those small events that were maybe slight catalysts on this path. Anyhow, there's the social aspect to transition. And then there's the medical aspect too. But there are choices to make about hormones, about surgery, and it looks different for every trans person. There are transgender people who choose not to medically transition at all. And that does not in any way mean that their identity as a trans person is diminished from somebody who's had surgery and or chosen to take hormones. So, you know, I did choose to medically transition. So I take hormones um, and I had some surgery. And, you know, that really for me was about bringing my physicality, my physicality and my body in alignment with my identity. There were some surprises in that process too, actually. Thinking about this theme of change, right? I think you asked at the beginning about what it means to me. And I was like, gosh, you know, sometimes I'm choosing change and those kind of changes can feel invigorating, right? They feel energizing. I'm all in. I, I want what I'm going for. And there are other times when change comes, you know, maybe it's something that's required of us or enforced on us or it's an unexpected consequence. So, you know, for me, one of the things I experienced after I had chest surgery was, you know, a real sense of grief and loss, which was hugely unexpected. I didn't see that coming at all. And that was a change I, I hadn't anticipated. Did it mean I'd made the wrong decision? It didn't. But I needed to embrace that as a part of that whole process. How, how long did that last, that grieving process? A couple of weeks, a month, maybe. Mm. I think, you know, the period post-surgery is you have an awful lot of time to reflect because there's not much else you can do. So yeah, probably within the first month. And then once, you know, I started to heal and, you know, I was experiencing how my body felt then um, post-surgery, I think, you know, that shifted and changed. And then, you know, what I experienced was an immense sense of liberation my body now makes sense to me in a way that it that it didn't before and it also opened up new possibilities right so you know there are things that you wouldn't necessarily think about for a trans person but you know for somebody who's transitioning from female to male often they will bind their chest right because part of gender dysphoria is you know that 
significant discomfort with a body that's not aligned. And having had that experience of covering, hiding, working around my physicality in that way, to then have the freedom to not do that anymore. (laughs) You know, the first time I took my shirt off on a beach was like this hugely life-affirming moment, which to anyone else, you know, male identified on that beach was just something they do on a daily basis, right? But to me, it was, you know, experiencing being in the world in a wholly new way. But I think there are all kinds of losses within transition that we don't anticipate. Some of the biggest losses for me came around that social transition, having spent most of my life around women, relating to women. Women are who I'm most comfortable around. They make sense to me. I still relate, you know, in that way myself a lot of the time. And, you know, as I started to physically present as more male, women's reactions to me changed. And there was a moment where I was in a line at the post office and it was a huge line. It was coming up to Christmas. And I just started a conversation with the woman who was in line next to me and I didn't think anything of it. And then I noticed her reaction to me. And I realized that socially the game had changed for me. Me doing that as a male, what she has read as a male identified person had a different connotation for her than if I was just another woman alongside her in that line in the post office. And I think those are some of the things that it's been hardest to come to terms with. Um, There are moments when I'm like, I just want to tell people because I just want to be able to make sense of it. So, yeah, those those kind of losses have have been felt for sure. And, you know, it it happened recently. I was at the pool with my partner and in my neighborhood and this there's this little girl who's often there. And I'm always struck by, she has some mobility issues, but when I see her in the water, she's able to splash around as she giggles at the top of her voice. Like it's just an utter joy to see her in the (laughs) pool on that float. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she was in the pool, she was playing with some toys and I saw her looking around and she kind of started to look a bit distressed, like she'd lost something. And her mom was on the other side of the pool and I went to kind of get up and help her and I stopped myself. Because what I experience now, being read as male in our world, is that there is less safety in me going and helping that young girl than there would be for my partner. So I said, okay, can you go help her and see what she needs? And her doll had got gone up the drain in the pool and she needed help mm-hmm. to get it out. And it comes from people not being comfortable with my gender identity and maybe not being comfortable with that around their kids. I guess I wonder, yeah, do do moments like that, are they dissonant for you? Is there a part of you that stops you? Yes. From going and extending toward, towards that, that child. And, and is that, you know, internally, is that, is that like a dissonance for you? Yeah. I I think absolutely it's me that stops that. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, inevitably I've internalized some of those reactions that I've had in the past. So that shame has become very internalized for me, I think. And yeah, I don't want to do something that will make someone else feel uncomfortable or question who I am, especially in a setting like at the pool, right, where my Mm -hmm. chest scars are visible and 
you know, it may raise questions about who I am. Yeah, I stop myself short, for sure. So some of it is around a different experience moving through the world in a male-identified way, and some of it does relate to being transgender and how that might be perceived. It's, it's yeah, there's some complexity around it. <laughs> it it's, very, it's very interesting. I'm curious, because I, I trained as an actor and I worked as an actor for many years, and... I'm curious about those very physical changes, especially changes to the voice and the body and how you hold them. I've always found as an actor in class on stage and especially as a teacher that it's, it's the voice and movement classes that bring up the most confrontation with one's identity and a confrontation with where our blocks are, what's not free, what wants to be freed. And I'm just curious how having a new voice, those new vibrations run through you. What's that like? Lean into that a little bit if, if you would. Yeah, voice was interesting because I, I remember the point at which it started breaking. Going through, you know, a second adolescence and puberty, essentially, in your 40s, it's it's an interesting experience, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I remember when my voice kind of started to change. I think one of my sadnesses is I really can't sing now. Um, I used to be able to, but I've never mm -hmm. found a pitch since my voice changed. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely different. I, I think it sits differently in me too and you know I wonder how much of that is the physical change and how much of that is just really the way I inhabit myself differently now in many ways I've always been a little bit at war with my body in different ways and you know earlier in my life I used to weigh over 300 pounds in my early 20s so you know, I, I've always... See, I knew we would... Um, I knew this is a five-part episode, Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've always hidden in some ways, in different ways, but, you know, certainly around my body, for sure. And I think I felt lost in my own body a lot of the time, too. So, you know, my posture used to be very stooped and kind of hunched over and also just not wanting to lift my head up in the world. So... I think that changed. You know, I saw that physical change happen. My shoulders sit for, further back now. I hold myself differently, slightly. It's interesting, isn't it, right, how that happens around gender too. And I think some of that is, you know, related to hormones and certainly surgery, right? I now hold myself differently because there's less to hide. But, yeah, the, the physical changes have been an interesting journey. I always very disappointed that I didn't get more facial hair. Do you think when you started on this journey of transitioning gender, was there something guiding you that was like a better life, a happier life, a, a more fulfilling life, a more authentic life? Was there sort of one pillar that you were moving towards? Really, it came down to, you know, if, if I'm going to move forward in my life and be open to having you know, another intimate relationship, I need to be able to be in that relationship in a way that's truly authentic to who I am. That was the kind of kernel of thought. Now, I'm not sure I had the vision of who that was or what that looked like, but I knew it wasn't who I was in that moment. Um, I didn't have a clear vision for what it was, but I knew it was going to be 
more aligned than how it had been. Do you have superpowers in relationships now because you bring such a unique perspective? (laughs) No. (laughs) I mean, you'd have to ask the people I'm in relationship (laughs) with, but no, I don't think so. I think, I think over here, my superpower is my accent. Um, (laughs) um, But I, I don't know about in relationships. I mean, yes, it gives me a unique perspective, right? Um, and I think it's only fair to say that the people who are in relationship with me, it changes their perspective probably, but it also changes the perspective of people around them. You know, my partner is a cisgender female. So to most of the world, most of the time, we look like a straight Mm -hmm. couple. So there are constant decisions to be made in that. If I choose to disclose Disclose. I don't know why I'm using the word disclose. It's so interesting because I don't usually use that terminology. But if I choose to share my gender identity with somebody, then I immediately, in a sense, out her sexual orientation. Mm. And likewise, if she chooses to share her sexual orientation with somebody, in turn, you know, she's she's kind of out in my gender identity. So it's this dance that we do regularly. And the people I'm in relationship with have a different experience of life, having a trans person in their, in their world, um, for sure. But I don't know about superpower. <laughs> I'm really pretty ordinary <laughs> on so many levels. <laughs> I would disagree. But... You mentioned your foster mom. Who, who else has been supportive and maybe even inspirational throughout your life? I mean, I'm fortunate. I have some very solid people in my life, for sure. I think it was Armstead Morpin. I'm a big fan of the Tales of the City books. Um, you know, when I say I make some of these references and I'm like, yeah, maybe I did know something earlier than I thought I did. <laughs> anyway, he references this idea of logical family rather than biological family. So I have I have an amazing logical family that's made up of close friends, some of whom are across the pond. I have a brother and sister too. And, you know, my foster sister is also queer and married to an American woman. So there's there's a level of diversity in, in that family that is affirming. And then, you know, over here, my partner is someone who inspires me on a daily basis. Um, she lives and loves very fiercely and is always telling people to choose their own life. And she lives that out. And, you know, I'm fortunate to work with the people I work with. They're people who definitely inspire me to be better in my work who you know fully accept me as I am and you know I'm lucky very fortunate to have that experience with my team at the IF Center. I've been fortunate to do work on the board of Glisten here in Tennessee and working with those young people those LGBTQ youth who are just out there fully in themselves you know expressing themselves advocating for themselves their peers you know for change you're probably aware of a lot of the anti-LGBT and particularly anti-trans legislation that, that has recently come into effect in Tennessee. And, you know, this group of kids was arranging, were arranging phone banks to call representatives and, you know, advocate. And I think their energy and their authenticity, right, they're kind of just, it blows me away every time I'm kind of in their company and around them. I want to know what you think the Glisten kids would say to you in terms of this question that kept arising about 
how much to share, when to share, what to share, what's appropriate. Like what, what would the youth say to that? Mm. Gosh, <laughs> that's a great question. I think they'd probably tell me to share what I wanted to share. You know, those kids, they have a sense of agency of their own. And, you know, they have that sense of agency even in school environments where they're not affirmed, where they face, you know, challenges to their identity and who they are. I think sometimes less so from their peers, but certainly within, within those environments for sure. And I think they probably tell me to trust myself. And I think what most trans people want simply is to be seen, accepted and loved for who they are not for it to be something exceptional, not for it to be something to be gotten over or worked around, but just for it to be a facet mm -hmm. of who they are and for it to be something that can just be spoken without shame, fear. You know, and for a lot of trans people, that translates into a lack of safety to a real fear about, am I safe in this setting and in this situation? And I think... You know, we have to acknowledge that. You only have to kind of look at the numbers of trans people that, you know, are killed each year. You know, mm -hmm. it's a significant number. What would you say, you know, talking about safety and maybe safety even just starting in one's circle when one decides to transition, decides to share that with ones close to them, what would you say to, let's say, the parents of a trans child or teen who, who are having trouble navigating that situation? First and foremost, believe them and thank them for trusting you with that information. Um, if they're sharing that with you, it's because you're a trusted adult to them and that's a privileged position to be in. And I know for a lot of parents, it's not an easy journey. There can be a lot of fear, a lot of concern, that goes alongside that. But the most powerful thing we can do for any LGBTQ young person, adult, is affirm who they are. You know, having a parent who is affirming makes a significant difference. We know that, you know, over half of all transgender kids will attempt suicide. But we also know that having affirming parents or caregivers can reduce that risk of suicide by almost the same percentage. So it's just under 50%, I believe. So, you know, I used to say this when I was in training, but using somebody's pronouns and chosen name is, is effectively suicide prevention, right? When you think of it in those terms. So believe them. I think understand that they may not have all the answers you need <laughs> and that their sense of identity may also change. And the truth is identity evolves, right? I mean, gosh, it took me to 41 to figure it out because, you know, I just didn't know what I didn't know. So I think give them space to explore that, you know, support them to do that freely. I love what you said. And I just really want to pull that out about having gratitude for the privilege of being the trusted adult it's easier said than done but to be able to stay in that mind space as yeah. you accompany someone through any change because changes are generally yeah. bumpy <laughs> they're so rarely smooth right. and to just yeah. be able to stay in that place of gratitude and yeah and privilege is really beautiful 
Yeah, as a parent, I can't imagine how hard that is too as well. You know, I think innately as a parent, the instinct is to, you know, make things okay, right? To come up with solutions, to find solutions, to, you know. And I think with this kind of journey in terms of identity and who we are, that has to come from the person, right? You have to let them lead and let them be the expert in that in so many ways. And I can only imagine as a parent in that situation how challenging that must feel alongside, you know, those concerns about safety and, you know, how that child's going to be perceived by the rest of the world. Even if the home is affirming, what does that mean when they go to school? What does it mean in all those other environments? Yeah, that tendency to fix which then we internalize, I think, as as children of fixers, <laughs> uh, just sort of being able to do away with that idea that there is anything to fix, really, right. um, would help so much. You just brought up this truth that you might be accepted in the home when you come out, but then there's the rest of the world to deal with. How, how would you like to see the world approach conversations around gender identity and gender expression? From a place of knowing and acceptance and understanding that, you know, there is more diversity than just the binary genders that we're perhaps, you know, conditioned to and and used to seeing. You know, gender identity is one part of who we are. And, you know, for some of us, it's a larger part, but, you know, really, it's just one facet of who we are. And, you know, I think for it just to be integral in that way, rather than this kind of element that is pulled out and then focused on and kind of judged in in certain ways. I want to know if with all the changes that you've been through in your life, if there are one or two things that have always remained the same or that are unchangeable. Gosh, I'm still an overthinker. That's Mm. not changed. (laughs) But, you know, that sense of who I am, I think I'd say not only has it not changed, but actually it's come to the fore more. I feel as though now I know who I am in a clearer way than perhaps I ever have before. I'm now living, you know, a life that makes sense to me. Yes. And I think that's the part I've been seeking for as long as I can remember, probably since seven years old, right? When will I get to that point where I feel at peace? Like the, just I'm in a place where I feel I belong and I belong to myself also, you know? And I think that's the place I'm in now increasingly. Not to say that doesn't get challenged at times, but that's emerged more so as a result of all the changes. It's always been there. It's just now I have the space to see it and access that in a different way. There's a resoluteness about who I am. There's this kind of thread that now I look back, you know, if I look back at my whole life that has pulled me forwards, there's, I think there's been times where I've been pulling that thread behind me, mm-hmm. dragging it along. And there's other been other times when I've been kind of holding on to it and letting it pull me forward. Maybe resilience is a better word for that, but there's just been this sense of knowing that I needed to keep going. That's beautiful. I love that metaphor and that image of the thread and when it's pulling you and when you're pulling it. And I love Mm. what you said about belonging to yourself and belonging to your community. 
Yeah. I would imagine that's just core to the human experience too, the desire to belong fully to oneself. Yeah. And connection. And seems like a, like it could be a lifelong process. Yes, connection. Yeah, for sure. I have a bunch of rapid fire questions I want to ask you. <laughs> so don't overthink. Okay. So uh, this is a fill in the blank. Change requires blank. Vulnerability. What is one thing, big or small, that you would like to see change in the world? Acceptance on every level. Mm. What is one thing, big or small, that you hope never changes? Hope. What is one small or superficial thing that you would change about yourself? The wrinkles around my eyes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's we horrible. didn't even talk about the aging process. That's a whole other episode, Kristen. It is a whole other episode. It is. It's humbling. Let me tell you that. I know. I didn't think I would struggle with it, to, to be quite honest, and it's a lot harder than I thought. Same. Be, it kind of crept up on me, too. Mm. So, yeah. What does your next big change look like? And feel free to be aspirational in your answer. <laughs> Not making any more big changes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. And Right. And, yeah, as I say that, I know that next year I'm going to be moving. So, you know, I mean, more change, right? It's a constant process. Are you a change maker, a change embracer, or a change resistor? All three. Hands down, all three. I can't choose one. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's how some of us are strung. Right. I'm curious about something. There's this Martha Graham quote uh, that lots of performers know, and she talks about us as artists, but I think it applies to all humans being channels for the artistic process to come through. And that if we block the channel, the expression doesn't ever get out into the world. And I wonder if you feel now, like you can look back at all of the changes and could you say that now there's something that can come through you that could not have come through you before? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. You know, and I think in talking about this to you and even thinking about, you know, sharing this story about my life, I think it's given me a perspective that, you know, is unique to me, but that I just wouldn't have had before. And I think I see that show up, you know, I see it show up in the way that I connect with others. I see it show up in the way I create relationship and how I kind of move through the world. I think we live our experience outwardly, sometimes for the good and sometimes it doesn't always feel like it's for the good. But I've always had that sense of, you know, what potential did I have? Who could I have been? Had I had answers to some of these things earlier, had my earlier life had a different path, what would that have looked like? And yet everything I've experienced has brought me to this moment. I wonder what that's going to open up for me. You know, I've always held myself as not somebody who's creative, but I've always been inspired by stories and poets, whether it's, you know, ancient Sufi poetry or something more current. The messages within that, like what's speaking to me in those things, all of that has 
in some ways been absorbed into me and I wonder what creativity there is to come from me. So I love to write. I don't do it often. And I second guess myself way too much to share it with anyone. But that's where I think there are these kind of untapped things in me that I've not been in a place or a space before where they've been able to be expressed. I think everyone is creative. And I think that I'm not here to give you a homework assignment. Good. <laughs> but I will give you one anyway. I can't shed the professor in me entirely. I didn't sign up for that, Kristen. I, I want you to write something and I want you to share it. And, and I would be happy to post it in the show notes. Mm. But even just spending these few hours with you, your heart is so rich. Your view of the world is so wide. I hope you will express more. And I love that you have sort of landed, we've landed on a question, which is what more will come through you. And I love that it kind of takes me back to, to the title of the podcast, which ends with a blooming, you know, of, of some sort and ex, an expression and opening. And so uh, I think I will be curious to see what does come through you next. Mm. I, f I feel a lot of gratitude actually for you even asking that question. You know, I think hearing you say that, I really recognize how I'm really only just now finding my voice, which seems like a strange thing to say, right? Anyone who knows me would be like, you talk all the time. Um, <laughs> really, you're only just finding your voice. But I think that real inner voice that speaks from an experience of life in the world can connect with others. And I think that's one of the ways that I'm able to make an impact. But what I'm seeing as you're asking me this question, so this is free-flowing thought, is that mm. I don't always fully have my voice, even now. And I think risking having my voice out there, you know, there's a reason why something in me was called to do this with you. I think there's something now about, yeah, not having maybe so many major changes ahead of me to come, but really putting voice to who I am as a result of the change I've experienced in my life and putting that to work in the world in some way. But I think as I was preparing for this podcast, it's funny because this one quote kept rolling through my head, find out who you are and do it on purpose, right? Where's this quote from? It's Dolly Parton. And I feel like that is just... <laughs> Speaking to you from Nashville, Tennessee, I just, I thought that was kind of just a really fitting quote for this whole conversation. Yeah. So I'm going to give a little nod to the wonderful Dolly Parton. People gravitate towards her, I think, because of that, because she is who she is. She's such an authentic yes. vibration, you know, musically, yeah. but in the, in the world. And it's not only very attractive, but it's, it feels good to be around that. Yeah. That kind of energy it's compelling that's a neat way to kind of wrap up and to maybe also nudge you forward to <laughs> do whatever is your next creative thing you know on purpose i'll let you know how that goes thank you jordan for 
your story, for your time, for your intelligence and your vulnerability. You're so welcome. I look forward to talking to you again. Shift Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at PradeFoundation.org and at TCOMConversations.org. And by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.